welcome to another edition of Not Your Father's Data Center. We are joined uh, back by popular demand, I might add, uh, the CEO of Marathon Digital Holdings, Fred Thiel. Fred, thank you so much for joining us again. Glad to be here. Fred, I think last time you and I spoke, uh, you were in London uh, doing some world traveling stuff. This time, where are you, where are you connecting uh, with us from? So I am uh, dialing in, if you would, from our new office in Irvine and California, and uh, we're still setting setting it up. So it's not the fancy video suite that uh, we will have in the long run, but it uh, it'll have to do for now. Well, the fact that there's a video suite coming just tells me we'll have to get you back for at least a third episode. So we appreciate uh, you joining us in transition. Thank you for that. Absolutely. So, if you're willing, why don't we just jump off with the, the thing that is top of everybody's mind today with, with the news cycle and the things that are happening in our world, um, you know, certainly the oil price, uh, the, the human tragedy, but I think that there's certainly a crypto angle or a crypto thought about, um, you know, how, how could crypto influence a war, impact a war, impact the funds around a war, impact people's assets during a war. I think it's just a different way of uh, thinking about currency and and um, uh, sanctions and those kinds of things in the context of a war. So, so as the CEO of Marathon Holdings, but more importantly, as somebody that's an expert in 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 uh, the concept of digital currency, how does digital currency in an age of a war um, change things? Uh, you know, it, it's it's a really interesting use case for crypto. So, if you go back to World War II, when uh, people were uh, being displaced and having to emigrate, leave their countries uh, based on the onslaught of the Nazis and um, all of the destruction that was going on, uh, they didn't have many opportunities to, for moving their money. Uh, you know, they couldn't obviously carry a lot of cash with them. That was dangerous. They couldn't carry gold with them. And so what many people did is they bought diamonds and sewed the diamonds into the hems of their clothing as a way to uh, essentially be able to carry their bearer assets. You know, it's an asset you can carry with you um, uh, across borders. Uh, very risky, obviously. And, you know, you're going to pay a higher price to buy the diamonds because you're desperate. And then when you sell them, you're going to sell them at a discount because that's what way markets work with these things uh crypto provides a very unique thing in this world where sanctions have now become a um, essentially a weapon and weaponized so if you look at what the u.s and the western countries have done uh to russia uh, with this uh war and their invasion of ukraine essentially they've used sanctions as a as a weapon and essentially shut down the ability for russian banks to interact with the west uh, for Russian businesses and Russian business people uh, to a great extent uh, to work with the West. And so if uh, you were somebody who had money in a bank and you wanted to transfer it uh, to the West because you know the ruble has essentially been crushed by these sanctions, um, it's now very difficult to do that. You know, Plus, Russia won't necessarily let you move to foreign currencies. So your only options are what other bearer asset can you take and uh, you know, Bitcoin happens to be a great example of one. So there's been uh, a lot of crypto buying going on, and you know, once you have crypto, um, essentially it's very portable because all you need to do is have your keys, and you can access your crypto anywhere in the world where there's an internet connection. So yes, you do need to have an internet connection to do it. Um, there are people trading Bitcoin, by the way, uh, directly face to face um, without. Uh, internet connections that are literally doing it, um, uh, you know, 
live between each other, uh, exchanging keys, and then as soon as they get uh, access to the internet, the transactions go live. But um, you know, risky none, nonetheless uh, as to how you do it. But it's certainly easier than carrying diamonds or gold with you. So as a use case, uh, using Bitcoin has become very popular, especially in the Ukraine, where you know people are fleeing, uh, and so they're converting their uh, local currency into uh, Bitcoin and then uh, safeguarding that uh, outside of the country. Uh, especially when you see these people having to flee, leave everything behind. Um, and you know, not being able to carry a whole lot, uh, just being able to carry your keys is um, enough to safeguard your assets if you're able to do that. So that's been a great thing. Now, people say, well, okay, if um, people who are refugees and people trying to avoid uh, you know, the depreciation of their assets by uh, all these sanctions can move to crypto, why can't crypto be used as a way to bust sanctions? So think, you know, Russia, use crypto as a way to essentially be paid for the oil exports that they're doing and then use that crypto to buy things. Well, the crypto markets are not like the fiat markets. Uh, you know, the total market cap of Bitcoin is uh, sitting, uh, you know, sub a trillion dollars. And you look at the average amount of Bitcoin traded on a daily basis, and it's typically about 30,000 Bitcoin. You know, that's under $2 billion at current prices of Bitcoin traded a day. A nation state like Russia can't operate uh, sanction busting when they can only move, you know, a couple hundred million dollars a day. It just doesn't work. And so, um, plus, you know, obviously crypto is very transparent. You can see where all these transactions goes and go. And today the tools that government officials have for tracking and identifying who holds the wallets, uh, you know, are very sophisticated. So I think uh, as a tool for sanction, evasion, Bitcoin's not a good option. Um, but what's interesting is you are seeing a lot of people where they may be uh, fearful of the volatility of Bitcoin. There's been a huge uptick in Tether and uh, USDC volumes lately. So that's also clearly people are piling into those as ways to um, have access to a cryptocurrency that's pegged to the dollar and, and more stable potentially and uh, easier to trade uh, in different markets. But it, it's definitely proving the use case. I think we've also seen Bitcoin decoupling itself um, from the uh, markets uh, a little bit, the equity markets, which has been good. And uh, you know, it's, it's generally a very exciting time. Yeah, Fred, as, as we think about um, the decoupling comment that you made, uh, how are how is Bitcoin trading in, in regards to equities on a whole? I think when you say decoupling, you're talking about that they're not tracking uh, quite the same. So you uh, expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So where uh, since the fall, um, late fall and uh, you know the beginning of this year, we saw Bitcoin moving very much uh, kind of in lockstep to the Nasdaq and to technology stocks. As people move to risk off with, you know, fear of the Fed raising interest rates and the impact that that would have uh, on equities. Uh, what you started to see at the beginning of the war was a decoupling where the correlation between Bitcoin and equities started separating and decreasing because obviously all of a sudden now there was a real use case for Bitcoin uh, that was very actual and um, very urgent. And so you started seeing Bitcoin move uh, in opposite direction of uh, equities and even Bitcoin related stocks 
which track the price of Bitcoin, obviously, started moving separately. So there were days where the Dow and the NASDAQ would go down, yet Bitcoin would go up. And you saw uh, the NASDAQ traded Bitcoin related stocks like Marathon, for example, move in lockstep with Bitcoin. And so uh, we're starting to see that decoupling. Fred, is the thesis there that um, you use this term, the use case, uh, I'm, and I'm going to just play it out in my head. I'm uh, a desperate immigrant wanting for my family not to be injured in Ukraine. Um, there's only so much I can carry. I'm going to liquidate my holdings uh, and, and I'm going to take it with me in a digital wallet format. Uh, I'm going to and I'm going to sell my and I don't know what the Ukraine local currency is, but I'm going to sell my uh, currency. I'm going to convert it to Bitcoin and I'm physically getting me and my family out of the country that that created uh, a demand spike in digital currencies and in, in Bitcoin in this case, and and while the uncertainty of, of a war on a war of this scale and, and, and this visible, um, equity markets don't like uncertainty. So you see the equity markets um, wane, but yet you saw this spike in demand. Is is that the confluence of events we're describing here? Generally speaking, yes. Uh, essentially, okay. what happens is um, we've seen since the kind of the late fall the retail trading of bitcoin decrease and institutional trading being kind of the general the bulk of the volume being traded and you know when institutions are buying bitcoin or trading in bitcoin is because it's a store of value um and what and what happened that leading up to the invasion you know with fear of the invasion and then the invasion of ukraine happening people quickly look to crypto as a way to safeguard their assets um, and so, you know, because if you think about it, if Russia invades, any Ukrainian banks are going to be out of business pretty quickly, right? So right. Uh, quickly moving their, their funds uh, to dollar-denominated accounts or into Bitcoin. And so that creates a spike in retail. And retail moves the price um, considerably. You know, again, there's not a lot of Bitcoin traded on a daily basis when you compare it to stock markets. Uh, and so a spike in demand... Uh, can move the price of Bitcoin significantly. I mean, if you look at a one-hour candle uh, of Bitcoin trading or you know a fifteen-minute candle, um, it, it's you know sub a thousand Bitcoin that are traded. And so you imagine somebody who has maybe twenty thousand dollars in savings, you know, that's half a Bitcoin. They want to convert it. Well, take a hundred people, uh, you know, at half a Bitcoin, and now you have fifty Bitcoin all of a sudden. You know, that's going to move the price. And right. uh, you could see it even by the time of day that these trades were happening uh, tended to be more European time centric. So you know, the, one of the great things about Bitcoin and uh, crypto trading in general is the transparency. It's so easy to see what people are doing um, and it's easy to see you know, where those trades are happening. Are they happening in the US? Are they happening in Europe? Are they happening in Asia? Um, and you can get a better feel for sentiment. Um, and that level of transparency makes it uh, much easier to kind of figure out what's going on in the marketplace compared to yeah. the equity markets where it's very small movements that uh, are driven by sentiment. Yeah, I just think the inherent uh, transparency in a blockchain environment versus a, a traditional market maker environment where in, in equity trading, right? You, they're just much, mm -hmm. everything's visible, right? Not only everything's visible, everything's validated by the, by the, the larger 
whole, right? Uh, that's that's yep. a whole blockchain concept. So very, very cool. Well, we appreciate you talking out. Uh, there's there's lots of conversations. Clearly, the war is on top of everyone's mind, but uh, conversations about how I, I loved your explanation about why Bitcoin couldn't be used as a way to circumvent sanctions. It's just a sheer volume conversation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when 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 you when you have a you know a GDP the size of Russia, the, the entire if you soaked up the entire Bitcoin market, it's still a, a blip on the radar. It's just a rounding error, and, and so so clearly not a vehicle by which any nation state could uh, circumvent um, uh, economic sanctions. So, it's, so that's, yeah. a, that's a clear picture. Or, or even a, a, an oligarch, when you think about it, you know, um, right. these oligarchs are starting to feel the pain, you know, you know, yachts worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars are being um, essentially uh, impounded. Uh, you're seeing, you know, their assets being essentially impounded by banks. And, uh, you know, while they may have a net worth of $10 billion, that's not all in cash. A lot of that is held in assets like homes and yachts and airplanes and uh, equities. And, you know, it's not easy to dump all that stuff. Right. And so uh, it's very hard for them. So when they move into crypto, as I'm sure some of them have done, it's been I would assume it's fairly easy to trace those bigger transactions. And just like. The way the SEC looks at any all of a sudden change in the trading patterns of a particular equity to see if an individual is trying or a group of individuals are trying to kind of manipulate or pump a stock. The same thing can be done in the crypto world. And I think you're going to start seeing um, the kind of law enforcement or the financial enforcement agencies responsible for dealing with sanctions use these tools to really identify who's doing what. Uh, out there and make sure that, uh, you know, those trades are being stopped or, you know, those assets are being frozen. Got it. Well, Fred, thank you for helping us think through uh, crypto in in the in when the world is at war and, and and hate the human suffering and don't want to discount that at all, but certainly wanted to have the conversation of how is crypto um, influencing or impacting or being utilized uh, for good or bad either way in in the war. Um, let's shift gears to a little bit of a data center topic. As as I think through cryptocurrency, uh, I, I appreciate you coaching me up that there, there's the proof of work currency, and then there's the um, proof of stake currencies. And and can you walk us through the difference between the two and, and then how this leads into uh, I, when I think about ESG, which is also on people's minds today, you know, how it impacts the energy being utilized by the crypto space for us as a, as a data center company. Our industry gets looked at pretty intensely because we're large users of electricity. Same for my friends in the in the digital currency space. Can you talk to us about the difference between, between those two um, ways? And I hope I'm going to say it right. There's different ways of hashing. Is that is that right? Um, yeah, it's it's not different ways of hashing, but it's different ways of validating transactions. So if Got you think okay. about proof of work, um, what proof of work is, uh, companies invest capital in mining rigs and energy to essentially validate transactions. We're processing transactions, assembling them into blocks, and then guessing a number. And if we guess the right number. Um, we win the block and we're paid by the, the Coinbase, if you would, the core network pays us. Um, in the case of proof of stake, proof of stake is essentially no different than banking. Uh, you know, it, People say, oh, it's decentralized. No, it's not. Uh, if you look at Ethereum, uh, the vast majority of um, you know, staking that's been done is resides on four platforms. So those platforms are essentially the core validators. No different than the banking world. So when you process a transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain, for example, where it's proof of work, um, 
it gets processed by miners and uh, it typically uh, will get um, uh, will reach finality uh, within a relatively short period of time. And the fact of the matter is no one person can manipulate that transaction because it's a consensus based algorithm. And there are enough people that do mining and mining is so distributed around not just the world, but amongst individual companies and pools that, um, you know, it, it's no one individual can do anything uh, to manipulate that transaction without having 51% of the hash rate. Uh, so the investment in capital and machines and energy is what makes this, uh, the Bitcoin blockchain, the absolute most secure blockchain in the world. And it's because of proof of work. In the case of proof of stake, essentially individuals are staking their uh, crypto holdings. So if you're in the case of ether, to be an ethernet, um, uh, an Ethereum rather, uh, staker, I believe the number was you had to provide 32 ETH um, and you had to stake 32 ETH and that was locked up for a year and then um, you had the opportunity to become a validator. Now, the way the validators in Ethereum work, uh, and I may have this a little bit wrong, but this is my understanding at least, um, essentially uh, the transactions, uh, you'll be chosen to validate transactions based on the size of how much you have staked. And so the larger staking um, groups will have the bulk of the validation. Well, it's really no different than having a group of banks validating transactions. And oh, by the way, it is very easy in a staking proof of stake model to manipulate transactions because if you're a big enough stake node, then you could essentially um, sell uh, or, or rather you could buy, let's just say 100 ETH and then you right away turn around and sell it and then you go back and erase the buy transaction and leave only the sale transaction. So now you didn't actually buy it, you just sold but it's almost like you never paid for the ETH. And it's, it's an oversimplification, but essentially, if somebody has a large enough percentage of uh, large enough stake, they can do a transaction like that, and um, it may go some period of time before that gets unwound or even discovered. Whereas in the Bitcoin proof of work model, uh, you would need to have 51% of the global hash rate, which is an amount of capital that no company unthinkable on yeah. has. Yeah. Um, to be able to do something like that, because you would have to essentially, um, you know, manipulate enough uh, nodes to make that happen. So uh, from a security perspective, proof of stake is, let's just call it people. Uh, and I think, you know, Vla uh, uh, you know, Vitalik Buterin has said this a couple of times. It's good enough. You have to trust it. Well, it's people trust their banks. But now go back to sanctions. Here we are. And, um, you know, you have your money, uh, your Ethereum locked up uh, on a stake note or you're just trading Ethereum and all of a sudden uh, there's a sanction event happens and the stake node that's responsible for validating your transactions gets sanctioned. Now, if you have staked your ETH, you may not be able to get it back. More importantly, the, your transactions may not get validated. So, you know, the concept of proof of stake is really just a digital version, quasi decentralized. It's not fully decentralized uh, model that's really just emulative of banks uh, operating all on a blockchain. So, um, Fred, I I'm personally, sure I'm just going to say, I just, just I, I personally think that if you want certainty and security 
uh, and a fully decentralized network, there is no other choice than proof of work. So, Fred, in this proof of stake world, are there aggregators uh, of, uh, you know, someone shows up, there's a bunch of individuals. Are there aggregators who collect up people that want to stake? You mentioned that there are only a handful that was tightly held. I think you said four. Are they aggregating multiple people in that stake? Is that how it happens? Yeah. So you have your large uh, exchanges like Coinbase, where you can uh, essentially use your ETH to stake. And then you have a company called Lido, which is most, sorry, one of the largest. Um, and Lido, I think, has a couple hundred thousand people who have staked through Lido, um, their Ethereum. But essentially, Lido becomes the validator. Uh, and so you have four organizations represent, uh, you know, nearly 50% of all the Ethereum that's staked out Got there. It. Granted, people have staked through them. But again, it's just like, you deposit money in the bank and the bank gets to use your money to do things. Uh, so, you know, these organizations are earning money on the on the capital you've staked or the cryptocurrency you've staked. Uh, and they're using that and then they're paying you as well a portion of that. But, you know, they're earning a margin on that themselves. I got that. That's a that's a great analogy. Just thinking about traditional banking. I put a thousand dollars in the bank small dollar amount, I could walk up and get my $1,000 any time, but the bank doesn't anticipate everyone coming and getting their $1,000 every day. So the bank invests that money and earns a return on mm -hmm. that money and then pays their depositors a small portion of that return. And what I think I yep. hear you saying is in the proof of stake, very similar model that, um, that uh, people staking their Ethereum, for this example, are providing liquidity into the Ethereum market and providing a pool of staking. And that trans transaction there's margin in that transaction that which gets shared with the individual mm -hmm. got Correct. it all right all right very very good well fred i know when when we had you on the first time you did a great job and we've had lots of people email and ask about the basics behind um uh, about behind blockchain the basics behind bitcoin do you mind giving us a five minute tutorial just going back to the beginning and going hey here's how it started and, and when i think about that i think about the total number of bitcoin uh the having uh, you know the, the number of that is available every month just some of the basics for people who don't understand and i know it's a bitcoin based um conversation for, for your business but would you give us some of those basics around bitcoin that people that are thinking about bitcoin for the first time uh just may not understand Sure. So um, Bitcoin was uh, initially conceptualized by a white paper written by um, somebody using the pseudonym uh, Satoshi Nakamura in 2008. And he wrote the white paper and then um, basically published it. A uh, group of people, core developers, started developing the software and uh, the software was uh, the network was launched in 2009. And at that time, um, there was a little bit of a lag and then the first transaction happened. And uh, if you look at the Bitcoin blockchain, it's designed um, as a cryptocurrency based on a finite number of uh, Bitcoin that can exist. And that number is 21 million. And uh, essentially every four years since 2009, um, the Bitcoin blockchain uh, goes through a halving or a halvening, as some people call it, um, and where the rewards drop by 50%. And today, for example, we're down at only 900 Bitcoin awarded per day, no matter how many people are mining, no matter how many uh, terahash of compute power are contributed to the global blockchain, it's 900 Bitcoin per day, or about 6.25 per block. And there's a block 
mind every 10 minutes, essentially. And um, the last halving event was in 2020. The next halving event is in 2024. And at that point, the Bitcoin blockchain will go from 900 Bitcoin issue today to 450. And then four years after that, 225 and so on until the year 2140, when the last Bitcoin will be issued. Um, to date, we've already issued uh, or mined 90% of the 21, bil 21 million Bitcoin that will ever be mined. So the vast majority of Bitcoin uh, to be mined have already been mined and are essentially in the uh, supply. Uh, today, most miners don't sell their Bitcoin. They tend to hold their Bitcoin. Um, and so that limits supply even further. Um, and when you look at the overall Bitcoin in circulation, uh, roughly about 83% based on recent numbers I saw of the Bitcoin uh, that has been mined is uh, has not moved in three months. And so that's indicating that people are hodling their Bitcoin. Um, about 12 to 18% of the Bitcoin that have been mined um, are essentially have been lost. They've never moved. So these were mined, put in a wallet, and then never moved. Um, if you look at the number of Bitcoin that haven't moved in over a year, um, it's you know somewhere around uh, 30 percent, uh, 20, 30 percent of the total Bitcoin. So a lot of Bitcoin is sitting in long-term holders' hands. Um, some of it's in the holders of whales, uh, but there are more and more Bitcoin wallets being created every day, and we're approaching, I think, roughly uh, somewhere around between 30 and 35 million Bitcoin wallets uh, in existence today. Uh, with a balance of greater than zero on them. So, 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 so Fred, can I, can I stick a stake in the lost mm -hmm. one for a second? So, yeah. so, so you say 12 to 18% around that number has have never moved. Um, is that somebody, uh, and I know you don't know for certain, but as I think through that, is that someone that um, maybe bought uh, a Bitcoin in the early days, 2009, 2010, 2011, when they didn't know what it was worth or they were somebody that was very technologically curious and it was on a hard drive somewhere in a digital wallet somewhere and they've forgotten about it. Uh, they've passed away. What, what, what's the thesis behind almost, you know, somewhere between 12 and 20 percent, 12 and 18 percent never moving? So these are coins that have been mined, but never left the wallet from where they were mined. So Satoshi Nakamura has a large number of Bitcoin in a wallet, for example, and those Bitcoin have never moved. Okay. Uh, you have, if you look at a Bitcoin that haven't moved in over a year, you know, it's a significantly larger number than that. Uh, if you look at five years, you know, it's a subset of that. And then, you know, the 12 to 18 percent is kind of the Bitcoin that have never moved. So, yes, you know, there's the proverbial story, the legend, urban legend, if you would, of the guy in the UK who had mined a bunch of Bitcoin uh, or had a bunch of Bitcoin in a wallet on a hard drive on his computer. Uh, or rather had the keys to the wallet on his hard drive and uh, the hard drive crashed. And, you know, at the time, Bitcoin was maybe worth fractions of a penny and he had maybe 100,000 Bitcoin. It was, eh, you know, I'm not going to, it's not worth it trying to salvage this. And the computer went on the trash heap and then uh, to the city dump. And then lo and behold, Bitcoin, you know, hits 19,000 back in <laughs> a few years back. And I was like, oh, no. This yeah, is a lot of money. And so you know, this is the guy who's been trying to get the city to dig up the dump to find his hard drive to salvage his keys. There are lots of stories like that. 
Uh, I was going to say, know, is that a real story, Fred, really... or is, is is that an urban legend? Is that a real? It's a it's, 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 a, it's a real story. Interesting. It okay. Is. Yeah, yeah. Because I would yeah. think, and, and, you know, you can Google it. Yeah. Okay. All right. It is a real story. Got it. I'm 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 not uh, in tune with the market enough to know, but yeah, I think about lost treasure, right? I think about a ship sailing across and sinks, and we've got records and that, and there are whole companies that go around looking for gold bars and coins on the bottom of the ocean. Uh, but but yeah. I, it, similar now that the Bitcoin is is got the value it does, I got to think that there are hard drives somewhere that someone has a digital wallet, and at the time they just just exactly the story. I got to believe that that's there's more than one of those stories globally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the the thing with the Bitcoin blockchain is there are people looking all the time to see if there's any movement in these old wallets that have never moved. So, for example, if coins were to move out of Satoshi Nakamura's wallet, then it's either one of two things. One, somebody has the keys to his wallet and uh, whether it's him or somebody else and they're moving the coins or B, somebody hacked the wallet and is moving coins, both of which would be major news events in the world of Bitcoin. Gotcha. Um, you know, it would be splashed all over the place. Yeah. But when you look at the really active trading on a daily basis, you know, it is 20,000 Bitcoin across all the exchanges that are traded on average a day. That's not a lot of Bitcoin. You brought up a comment there when you talked about Shatoshi's wallet. So I've been in the technology business my whole life, uh, got in the business in the late 80s. Um, accidentally and and you know you hear uh the, the conversations around digital security and the concept of a CISO. right when i started in technology nobody knew what a security officer was much less a chief information security officer right and i think there's a a phrase that gets said in the security space that that nothing is unhackable right at some point somebody can figure out how to break into something digital as i think about a digital currency um is because it's transparent and visible in the blockchain, is there some level of inherent security? Because I think about if I have, you know, tens of millions of dollars in a digital currency, how secure can, how certain can I be that that wallet and those keys are, are secure? Well, um, a brute force attack on a Bitcoin wallet, um, is really difficult unless you have some information that would help you figure out what the seed phrase for the keys to that wallet are. Uh, and so, you know, people who specialize in helping people try and recover their keys, and there are a few success stories, they had enough knowledge that allowed them to generate enough of the seed phrase that they were able to, because obviously the owner of the wallet was a willing participant, uh, they were able to uh, figure it out in the end of the day. But if you're doing just a pure brute force attack, it would take so much compute power today. Um, and, uh, you know, the minute uh, something moved from that wallet, it would, you know, alarm bells would go off. So uh, it, it's very hard. It's actually much easier, by the way, to hack into a banking system, to hack somebody's phone or hack into a mobile app and take money out of somebody's bank account. Um, than it is to hack a Bitcoin wallet. And so most hackers focus on that because it's easier um, than hack, trying to hack you know, the Bitcoin blockchain or, or somebody's wallet. But you know, um, there are some people who, through social engineering, um, uh, use you know, very simple seed phrases. And you know, if somebody spends enough time looking over your Facebook page and your social media posting and things like that, they may be able to get data that helps in doing that, but it's still really, really difficult. Um, 
know, the bigger issue is more uh, somebody gets uh, has a phishing attack. And uh, you know, I know people who, for example, um, have gotten emails from ex- an exchange saying, hey, you know, we're upgrading you to the pro service. Move your, you know, key, move your coins from this wallet to this wallet and you'll get, you know, preferred service. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, that's actually a hacker who has now taken their coins. And, you know, because of finality, once you send coins, you can't get them back very easily. And, um, you know, that, that aspect of finality is a detriment if you're a novice or you don't really feel safe in moving money from one wallet to another. And that's why a lot of people like to custody their Bitcoin on an exchange because it's easier. You can call, hey, you know, I want to do this. How do I do this? And you can get help. Uh, just like with the stock market. Um, and it's only really people who are very concerned about security and being the able to have their own sovereignty over their assets uh, or sovereignty over their assets who will move their coins to a proprietary wallet and keep them off chain. Um, but for most people, you know, it's all about making the uh, trading and the use of cryptocurrencies easier. And as you do that, it reduces the friction and more people will adopt it and more people will start using it. Um, but, you know, Bitcoin is essentially today a, a store of value. Uh, and over time, uh, it'll continue to spread amongst institutional holders. You know, more and more of the big banks are starting to offer Bitcoin custody and trading services. You're starting to see more commerce opportunities for it. You know, eBay has been saying that they're potentially going to allow uh, crypto to be used for paying things. You're starting to see states adopt the ability or offer the ability, hey, pay your taxes in crypto. Now, they're not going to custody and hold that crypto. They're going to sell it right away as soon as they get it. But as more and more of those types of transactions start happening, you'll start seeing crypto coming more and more into the mainstream, and you'll eventually start seeing easier wallets and easier tools for people to use. And that in itself will drive more and more adoption. Again, go back to the Internet, 1997, 1998. You know, you had this thing called a Netscape browser and you can go look at a few websites. And where are we today? Uh, We do everything. You know, you think about these um, devices like a smartphone. Uh, You know, it's a ubiquitous human machine interface. And if it wasn't for the smartphone, you know, Facebook wouldn't be anywhere near as large as it is because people do 70 percent of their postings, et cetera, on Facebook using their smartphone. They don't do it at a computer typically. Uh, you know, Instagram is pretty unusable at a computer. You have to have a smartphone to use Instagram. And the world of crypto is moving in that direction very, very rapidly. And uh, people were afraid that the uh, White House was going to try and mandate a ban of crypto. And instead, they're embracing it in a very big way, even to the extent that it looks like they're being very embraceive of a central bank digital currency issued by the Fed. Um, so this is going to be very interesting over the next six to 12 months as the uh, execution of the uh, executive order happens, which essentially mandated a bunch of studies to be done. Look at security, look at environmental impact, um, look at uh, you know central bank and facilitating faster trading and more innovation. Uh, it very much appears that the White House is embracing crypto and trying to uh, direct the federal government and its various branches to really educate itself and not just have knee-jerk reactions and then craft legislation that really allows the U.S. to remain um, sort of a dominant position as an innovator in this space and adopter of this technology. 
Fred, you mentioned the uh, the executive order and and the government issuing a digital currency. Um, one of the things I you know, and, and I'm not nearly immersed in it as you are, but I think of fiat currency and central banking. I think of the global economic system built on those two pillars. Right, there are central banks, and there is fiat. Then they issue fiat currency, and uh, the Bitcoin or all digital currency residing outside of that system. If a central bank starts to issue its own digital currency, that seems to me like a, a, an odd melding of two worlds. How, how do you think about that? How do you think, uh, how does the, let me, let me rephrase, how does the digital community feel about that? And how do you think that that will work when the idea, I think one of the ideas, at least behind digital currency is, let's get outside of the central banking system. Yeah, so the, the central bank um, digital currencies are more a technology innovation to facilitate more rapid and immediate payment um, than the traditional Fedwire SWIFT system. You know, the SWIFT system was invented in the 70s and is essentially a messaging service that allows a bank to say, hey, um, you know, uh, one of my clients wants to send one of your clients money, so deduct from my bank account, my the, the bank, you know, the central bank, deduct in my bank account X number of dollars uh, and put them in your client's bank account and um, I'll deduct from my client's bank account and put it in the central bank account. And it just, it's a cumbersome way and that's why wires can take multiple days to get through and it's just a complex process. Um, the idea with a central bank digital currency is not so much for consumers to use it uh, as a replacement for dollars because let's face it, you know, every time you pay for something on a mobile app, uh, you're essentially paying with digital dollars. Whenever you use your credit card, you're essentially using digital dollars. It's just a ledger entry at the bank that's moving around. Um, so central bank digital currencies are really more about the wholesale aspect, bank-to-bank -bank transactions, gotcha. facilitating that. It's like in the stock market. When you buy and sell stocks, um, you know, it typically takes you know, two days to settle, two to three days to settle. Uh, and you know, now they want to move to immediate settlement. Well, the only way to do that is if it's done on some form of blockchain or some form of digital system uh, without lots of intermediaries, uh, which are required today. So, you know, you're going to start seeing, you know, CBDCs as these central bank digital currencies are called. They're going to focus much more on alleviating all of the friction that exists in the plumbing of our financial system. Uh, and they're not meant to you know, necessarily compete with Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies who are more focused on self-sovereignty of your assets and the ability to kind of be outside of the system uh, and have an asset that has uh, a value that operates hopefully independently of fiat currencies. Because if the US government issues a CBDC, they can debase that CBDC the same way they debase the dollar because it will be dollars, they'll just be digital dollars. They're not gonna create a separate currency that'll trade differently. Got it. So, so um, as I sit here and think about, you, you walked us through there's 21 million forever, but you know, by the time we're done, they're never gonna be more than that. Um, if if this digital currency thing makes it and continues to, to be a thing, and I know people can laugh at me, it's 13 years in and of course it's gonna make it. But if it, if it continues to go this direction, what would be an event that would drive the currency the other direction, right? Because the notion of scarcity is already there. It's already built in, right? We know there's a finite number. And, and when I think about the central, central banking system, it's one of the things that frustrates me about the central banking system. 
and I think frustrates a lot of people in America right now with you know seven, eight, nine percent inflation, is that the that there's no guarantee of the value of my dollar, right? And, and as a matter of fact, there's a pretty much a guarantee it's only going one direction, and that, that it's getting diluted. Certainly, it's been nothing but diluted in my 54 years. Dollars rarely appreciate long term. I don't understand as I look at a digital currency. What would cause a significant deflationary event in a digital currency? Isn't it only going to increase in value? And I, I know I'm kind of teeing up a softball there, but I'm just trying to wrap my mind around what would cause a deflationary event in a digital currency with a finite supply? Uh, well, you know, at the end of the day, it's supply and demand dynamics are going to drive um, the drop in price of a digital currency. So if all of a sudden, um, in the case of Bitcoin, for example, which has uh, achieved, uh, you know, amazing success over these 13 years. Um, but it's still less than 10% of the scale of gold, for example. And by the way, gold only has value because we attribute value to gold. Um, it, it's certainly not diamonds, the rarest metal on the planet. Right, right. Exactly. And, and diamonds even more so because they're manipulated by an oligopoly. that right. consists of De Beers and, uh, you know, uh, a handful of other including the Russians, uh, you know, companies that, that manage that marketplace and limit supply. Um, but what's going to drive, you know, a, a decrease in people's faith in Bitcoin as an asset are going to be if the blockchain is hacked, for example. That would definitely drive a loss of faith in the Bitcoin uh, in the value of Bitcoin as this asset that can't be seized. Um, you know, it, and anything that changes people's perception of the trust they have in Bitcoin is going to affect it just like any other asset, uh, no different. You know, the value of a company on the stock market is uh, theoretically based on the book value of the company. But at the end of the day, look at GameStop. This is a perfect example of where, you know, you get a bunch of people who think it's going to be worth something more, they'll pump up the price and then it can crash just as quickly back down. You know, Dogecoin has gone through some of those cycles. Uh, you know, you've certainly seen it uh, in, in other places. The one thing I think that you know, Bitcoin has going for it is that because it's so decentralized, there isn't one group of people, one organization that decides um, and makes decisions that can have those kind of negative impacts. Uh, in the world of Ethereum, for example, you know, Ethereum is essentially controlled by the Ethereum Foundation and the, the large holders of Ether. And there are 70 holders of Ether who hold the vast majority of the Ether out there. And so, uh, you know, just look at how frequently Ether uh, forks and, you know, how they do these changes in the marketplace today. Um, you know, that's all because it's more centrally controlled than Bitcoin, which is fully decentralized. There is no body. There is no person who can make any decisions about Bitcoin. Right. It requires consensus of, you know, all the miners and the pools, et cetera, uh, to get together and do that. And, you know, back in 2017 with the Segwit Wars. Um, you know, you had nearly 90% of uh, the miners in the Bitcoin blockchain who tried to get a change through and they couldn't get it through. So that shows the kind of uh, imperviousness to change that it has. What does that mean? It means that innovation happens at a potentially slower pace in Bitcoin, but at a very steady pace. And uh, the same analogy can be viewed if you look at the Lightning Network. You know, the Lightning Network is continuing to grow slowly but surely it just continues to grow as more and more people use it for creating payment channels and i think over time uh you know these layer two 
payment systems built on top of the Bitcoin blockchain are going to dominate the marketplace because the Bitcoin blockchain offers, you know, ultimate security and finality for transactions. And then these layer twos uh, provide very high velocity, very low cost transaction processing that then settles on the Bitcoin blockchain. And we're now also starting to see back to the proof of stake, proof of work uh, discussion. We're now starting to see also proof of stake networks that in order to avoid the inherent conflict of interest that stakeholders have uh, for validation, that um, essentially a proof of stake network will use the Bitcoin network and its proof of work to write blocks, uh, essentially encode data on the Bitcoin blockchain such that nobody can go back and change a transaction on the proof of stake network. And now you're starting to see a really interesting hybrid. So yeah. uh, if I were to put my wizard hat on and look in my crystal ball, I think what you're going to see is the Bitcoin blockchain and proof of work will remain and become the basis for security amongst many of these uh, upcoming uh, proof of stake networks, uh, providing you know this essentially um, in unchangeable uh, blockchain where you'll always be able to go back and audit that, uh, you know, the proof of stake network is uh, in proper state, if you would. And so I think, you know, you're going to see that you'll see a lot of these proof of stake networks come and go. You know, there are most of the new networks uh, are trying to compete with Ethereum. Uh, you know, Ethereum has you know, some drawbacks, very high gas fees, uh, you know, limited amount of transactions that can be processed. And you're seeing Solana and uh, all of these other uh, Cardano and all of these other um, competitive blockchains that are really trying to solve for those issues um, and you know giving Ethereum a real run for its money I think but at the end of the day it's going to be the Bitcoin blockchain and then a bunch of other things um, In closing would you be willing to give us a Marathon Digital Holdings commercial uh, how you guys doing how's the business um, why should my friends listening go out and buy uh, your, your stock what's, what's going on at Marathon well uh you know, obviously, I'm not going to go out and tell people you have to go buy our stock. That <laughs> wouldn't be appropriate. Uh, but, um, you know, listen, we are uh, very much focused on growing to be one of the largest Bitcoin miners out there. We're obviously huge proponents of the Bitcoin blockchain as a secure network and as the network upon the layer one on which many of um, identity, healthcare and other applications are going to get built uh, in the future. So we're busy scaling to 23x a hash from, uh, you know, we ended last year at about 3x a hash. We'll scale up to 23x a hash, uh, which for, you know, uh, context, uh, 23x a hash at the end, uh, you know, this time next year will be about 6% of the global blockchain was probably based on the global hash rate growing uh, by almost 100% this year. Um and so we're really busy deploying. Um, you know, we've had some uh, fits and starts uh, getting miners deployed uh, due to the method we use, which is behind the meter uh, at renewable plants. And there's some special permitting that goes on. There's some issues related to getting the grid electricity coming into the power generator versus going out from the power generator. But I think we've resolved all of that. And we're you know, moving a lot of, there's a lot of earth being moved, a lot of containers being put in place. And we have a lot of miners sitting on the ground that we're getting ready to plug in. Uh, and, uh, you know, we expect to be deploying at a very uh, fast rate here um, through the end of this quarter and into Q2. 
and uh, by the end of Q2, have be fully caught up with our growth plan. So. Awesome. Well, Fred, thank you for telling us a little bit about Marathon. I always think that um, we learn a bunch listening to you on top of the fact that you got a great radio voice. So uh, if you don't, uh, if things don't work out in the digital space, you can get some voiceover work. I'm sure of that. And, uh, and we really, really appreciate you educating us on, on the blockchain and on uh, digital currencies and, and also on what's going on at Marathon. So thank you so much for joining us. Tonight.